Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. This is the Character and Smallman Podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's Character and Smallman. Guess what day it is? Huh? Hump day! It is hump day. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN at 7.04. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Hump day means Ask Uncle Randy Day. Get your text in to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780, or you can participate via our Rhino Shield mic drop feature with the 101 ESPN app. You can ask me in your sad voice, Uncle Randy, what do I do? Uh, good morning, Michelle. Did you think that we would have another hot chocolate day in 2021 until like next November or whatever? I did not anticipate it. I had actually packed up all my boots and most of my warm <laughs> clothes. I was transi- transitioning to the spring and summer wardrobe. I was ready too. And LOL at me, jokes on me because I am from St. Louis. I should know that as soon as you get the glimpse of spring slash summer, that inevitably we're going to revert to winter at some point. And we got it yesterday with snow. And not only just some snow, it snowed for a long time. Were those giant flakes or what? It might have been the biggest flakes I've ever seen. They were huge. You walk outside, they'll knock you out, give you a concussion. (laughs) So, yeah. So it was a a cold, snowy mid to late April day in San Luis. Hey, we're talking sports on 101 ESPN. And not only was the weather cold, but so were the Cardinal bats. Oh, nailed it. (laughs) Well, Randy, the Cardinals scored 12 runs the game prior and as we know the pendulum swings with this team either you're feasting which they did scoring 12 runs and we knew that they were going to famine it didn't matter what Patrick Corbin's ERA was heading into this game it didn't <laughs> no. it did not matter how much he was struggling because one thing is consistent and that's that the Cardinals offense will either feast or famine and Last night, it was famine. Josh Bell gave the Nationals a lead in the sixth with a homer off of Adam Wainwright, who pitched brilliantly and will join us at 9 o'clock. Cardinals came back in the seventh. Uh, Yadi Molina with a big double scores on a triple by Dylan Carlson. Cardinals tie it at one. And then Austin Dean with a sack fly to get the Cardinals the lead two to one. But in the bottom of the eighth with Giovanni Gallegos on the mound, Trey Turner with a ground ball hit to score Andrew Stevenson. And that ties it at two. And then a bases-loaded walk by Gallegos to score Josh Harrison. Give the Nationals the lead three to two. And that's the score that they won by. And I thought it was interesting, Michelle, that 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 was a game where once Harrison gets hit, the second hitter gets hit. I think if you don't have that three batter minimum, Skipper might be thinking, okay, let's get somebody else up here Mm -hmm. quickly. But with the three batter minimum, he had no choice but to pitch to Trey Turner. And ultimately, obviously, the Nationals loaded the bases and they were able to win the game because Gallegos had a rough outing. Now, in terms of Gallegos pitching individually, do you say bring in a left-hander to pitch to any of these hitters? No. All of those hitters should have been facing a right-handed pitcher. The Cardinals had already used uh, Jordan Hicks in the pen. He, He was already used up. And they don't want to go overboard with Reyes, although he did 
get the last uh, four outs of the game. But it was just one of those nights with the bullpen. The bullpen's really good, and every bullpen is going to go through this now and then. Specifically, Giovanni Gallegos. He's someone that normally you have a lot of confidence in. As Mike Schilt said last night, he's been one of their best pitchers yeah. for the past three seasons. So in that moment, if I'm Mike Schilt, even though he's not having the outing that you would normally get from him, you still do have that layer of confidence in Giovanni Gallegos because of the, the sample size that you have of him. But there was just so much drama in the eighth inning of that game mm-hmm. last night. I loved it. I loved Mike Schilt going for it. I loved him rolling the dice when he brought in the extra infielder, thinking yeah, out, outside the box. Obviously, it ended up working in that moment. The next batter, not so much, but I loved that he had the book on Castro. He he said, you know what? This is no- normally a guy who's going to ground out. Hopefully, I'll put the ball in play for potentially a double play. I'm going to be creative, and I'm going to do something different. And I just appreciate that side out of Mike Schilt. So what was the thought process in keeping Gallegos in for the rest of the eighth inning? Here is the Cardinal manager, Mike Schilt. I mean, clearly, Stevenson worked a walk. Pitch got away from with Harrison. Um, made a good two-strike pitch to Turner that he stuck the bat out, hit it down the right field line. Um, then he punches Bell out, walks Schorber, bring the infield in, um, punches out Castro. I mean, Gio's a high punch-out, low-walk guy. And like I said, Stevenson, again, got on a walk. and Ball got away from Harrison. But he goes punch-out, punch-out. At that point, it's his game. You know, you trust Gio. I mean, if you've got to... Bring a Gio's been one of our best guys for three years. So, you know, I can't hit the, the proverbial panic button because um, he's got the stuff to get out. If he comes, comes in in jams, he's pitching in jams, he's in a jam, and he pretty much was a pitch away, you know, a couple pitches away from getting himself out of a jam. Had Alex ready, um, but again, punched out, punch out. Um, he earned the opportunity to, to finish off his business, and um, a couple close pitches didn't go his way, and, of course, got the walk. I'm cool with that. That's, hey, that's just one of those games where you're going to have those during the course of the season. That's the old adage, you're going to win 60 and lose 60, and mm-hmm. it's the other 40 that you uh, concern yourself with. I really think that, unfortunately for the Cardinals, with the way Gallegos was going, that was one of the 60. Yeah, absolutely. And you would hope that the team would provide some offensive yeah. run support so that in a situation like this, that might be a moment in the game, not the moment in the game. The story of this game, obviously, was Adam Wainwright, who was brilliant. Seven innings, 10 strikeouts. He allowed five hits, one run. He walked only one and felt great. Honestly, I didn't feel any different than I've been feeling. I just executed better. I got ahead in the count better and you know, worked down better. When you do that, you get at those early strikeouts you get ahead in the count that's how i get strikeouts is when uh i'm 01 02 a lot one oh two one two a lot that's when i get my strikeouts i, I rarely get double digit strikeouts anyways but I, I rarely get them when i'm going three two a lot you know it's uh it's usually done earlier in the count so it's all, it's all about attacking hitters and trusting your defense and just leaving in your stuff and that's mad dog always says the hardest thing to do and in pitching or in, in sports and baseball is trusting your stuff. And uh, sometimes he's exactly right. You know, it's a, uh, it's a fun game. I love competing. I love pitching and uh, just got to trust it, you know, go out there and use your stuff and pitch. And please, I implore you watch and enjoy and savor this at 39. Bob Gibson was retired at 39. Chris Carpenter was retired at 39. John Tudor was retired. The best that I have seen for the Cardinals We're not pitching at this age, and he's not only pitching, but he's pitching really, really well. It's an amazing story. Really, really well. Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina, we need Mm -hmm. to savor them both. It's very hard in real time 
to take a step back and appreciate and soak it in. But I think with these two, with the, the threat of free agency or the threat of them not coming back, we do have a little bit more appreciation for them. But the fact that these two guys are still the two leading your team in so many ways on and off the field is remarkable. But when Adam Wainwright goes out and he pitches a gem like he did last night and then the team loses and the offense can't provide support for him, it drives me up a wall. Yeah, it is really frustrating. I hate that that brilliant outing from him was wasted in a game that the team lost. And the amazing thing is is that it probably bothers us more than him because he just has a different outlook. That's true. So good for him. The Blues were off yesterday, and they'll be back in action tomorrow night against the Avalanche at Enterprise Center. At least we hope the Avalanche can go. 6 o'clock pregame with Alex Ferrario, 7 o'clock puck drop, and you will hear all the action here on your Home of the Blues 101 ESPN. We'll talk to David Perron coming up at 8.30. And, Michelle, that uh, Super League in, in soccer did not last long. This is a rare win for the fan. Yeah. This is a rare loss for the the machine or the powers that be that typically make decisions based on greed. But I love that the fans were so upset about this and they made their voices heard so loudly and so consistently that these owners had no other choice other than to pull out of this stupid Super League. And it was even the fans of the teams that were going to be in the Super League. In yes. addition to the fans that were, of the teams that were just going to be cast aside, essentially, it was the Arsenal fans, it was the Tottenham fans, it was the Chelsea fans, it was the English Premier League fans of the Premier teams that were the ones that really forced the hand of the owners of these franchises. And good for them. Yeah. I'm I'm so pumped for the fans. I thought the idea was lame. I didn't like that all of a sudden these teams had designated themselves as safe. And some of these yeah. clubs, when you dig into them, you're like, why are you all of a sudden getting a pass and going into the Super League? Oh, because you want the money? Great. And I think part of the reason that people love the EPL or they love UEFA is because they love the threat of relegation. You never know. You never know. Right. And that's part of why it's so great. And they have a product that so many people internationally love. They love the construct of what's happening in European soccer right now. So for these clubs to want to ruin that or poison it in any way for their own greed, it's just it's very typical of ownership. But I'm as someone sitting in a market that had fans that were victims of greed and victims of owners doing whatever they want and not caring about the fan interest. I appreciate that the fans won this one. Oh, and we should note that uh, as Emily texted us yesterday, hashtag Cronky out was trending worldwide yesterday. It was, and I was looking at it and it was not just people who obviously hate him because they're Arsenal supporters and they understand what we understand that he is the worst owner in sports and he's just a terrible person but it seemed like a lot of people here in America who might not even be soccer fans that were digging into this realize that this is a pattern with Stan Kroenke and the role that he played in this and everyone's angry at him so today the sun is shining a little brighter in St. Louis because we're looking at the world and saying told you so absolutely there you go. We're off and running here on Character and Smallman. Ask Uncle Randy coming up. Get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780 or leave us a mic drop at 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. 
All right, if you have a question for me, I am prepared to answer it. Whatever it might be. Is it about grilling? Is it about where's the best place to ride your bike in St. Louis? Is it about a relationship issue that you may or may not have? Maybe maybe an employment issue that you may or may not have? Ask Uncle Randy, 65780, the Air Comfort Service text line. And Michelle, I know you always enjoy uh, relaying these questions to me. I do, and I love this first okay. one from the 314. Dear Uncle Randy, I'm 30 years old, and I've started to date a 40-year-old woman. I've told my dad and he seems fine with my decision how do i tell my mom because i know she's not going to be thrilled with this decision i would just rip the band-aid off and this this is cool you're, you're fine with this uh 40 year old woman she's uh experienced she's obviously somebody that you enjoy and you're willing to introduce your parents to i have absolutely no problem at all and as somebody who has a 26-year-old. If his girlfriend was 36, I wouldn't have any trouble with it. Uh, and I don't believe his mother would either. So I, I would just rip the Band-Aid off and make that announcement or introduction and say, hey, Mom, if you're telling her without your 40-year-old girlfriend there, say, Mom, 40 is the new 30 anyway. 100%. So we're both 30. Demi Moore and Ashton Kutcher, ever heard of them? Thank you. J-Lo and A-Rod. There you go. Well, it didn't end great, but it was nice while it lasted. But it, I don't think age was a factor there. No. Uh, as long as emotionally you are syncopato, we're fine. And I'm, I'm totally cool with that. And I think it's great that he respects his mother's opinion and he wants to make sure to get the blessing of both of his parents with his relationship. But at the end of the day, it's your life. Yep. It's your decision. Whatever makes you happy, you need to do that and live in um, your relationship that you want to be in. No. So. That being said, you don't want to introduce a girlfriend to your mother who is the same age as your mother. That's that's the cutoff point right there. But 10 years older, you're cool. I Congratulations. <laughs> so you're saying that the mother will probably be okay with 10 years, but maybe not 20 years. Yeah, 25, probably not very happy with that. No. Yeah, I can't imagine my dad would be thrilled if I brought home his peer. Someone he went to high school with. Yeah, no. I don't think he'd be pumped. No. And as it turns out, there's another reason for your congratulations. Although it would have been cool 10 years ago, uh, males generally reach their physical peak from the ages of 18 to 20, 22. Women reach their physical peak right around age 30 to 34. So uh, you guys are physically like right in the same spot in terms of the way the the etymology of the body works. I think it's great. Age is just a number. Yep. Age is just a number. From the 314. Yeah, dear tell your dad that. Or your mom that. <laughs> <laughs> dear Uncle Randy, my company hired a new manager who I work under. He is totally incompetent and has no idea how to do his job. I asked him if I could have Thursday off because we're putting our family dog down that we've had for 13 years, and he denied my vacation request. I'm taking tomorrow off anyway. Do I wait him out because he's eventually going to get fired, or, or do I start looking for a new job ASAP? All right. This, If you really like the job, I would wait it out. Now, one thing I would do about tomorrow with your dog is uh, send a note to HR too. say, hey, I'd like to take this day off. We've got a family member. It's a, a dog that we're going to put down. We have to do this. I'm going to be there. So make sure the HR knows because HR generally has a heart. Our HR people are the best. The they, best. They, they have hearts. Uh, so make sure they know. But it's all going to come down to 
how much you like the job and how much you're willing to roll the dice that you will like the next job as much. You get to scout. That's one thing is that you don't have to leave your job. You can look for a new job. And if you get interviewed for one that you, you aren't as enamored of, then you keep the job that you have. You don't have to leave. But I would quietly start the exploration process. That's what I would do. Who's your new boss? The Grinch? You're a mean one. Is it Stan Kroenke? Is it Stan Kroenke? How do you not approve a vacation request to put down a family yeah, dog of 13 years? That's that's just a bad person. That's not even vacation. I would say don't even have to submit for the day. Just right. take it with your family. Right. That's that, That's a bad person. And that's why I say maybe you go above if that person has a, a superior that you know and are comfortable with. I, I would just kind of stick your head in the office and say, hey, I've been here a while. Our dog is 13 years old. We're putting it down tomorrow. Uh, I know that uh, that Bill, my, my manager. Definitely Bill. Yeah, is not on board with me uh, going, but I just want you to know that I'm going to be with my family as we put our dog down tomorrow. But in regards to him waiting it out for the incompetent boss or looking for another mm-hmm. job, Having an incompetent boss is one of the worst things in the world. You spend more time at your job than you do anywhere else. And if you're working with someone, yes, if you're working with someone that you don't enjoy or you don't think is making you better, that is very difficult. And don't just assume that because they're incompetent that they're not going to be there for a long time because they could have a personal relationship with someone or maybe they manage up well and your boss above them has no idea how incompetent they are. So I would suggest looking for other jobs because do not assume that this person is just going to be out in a few months because they can't do their job. Yeah, I think we've all seen situations like that where there is incompetence at the middle management level. So, yeah, that's why I say I I would start looking. And then if you find something, the the job that's better, then take the leap. And this could be a reason. When when you make the decision, if you do, say, you know what? I don't really want to work for a company that wouldn't give me a day off when we're putting our dog down. Exactly. From the 314, Dear Uncle Randy, I play corkball, and the last couple times my wife has come to watch, I haven't gotten a hit. But the last time she did not come... I went two for four. How do I tell her that she can no longer come to the game so I can keep hitting? <laughs> okay, there's there's only one way to tell her. You have to say, "Hun, I went two for four when you weren't there, and I've gone zero for eight in the last two games that you came to where I wasn't there. You are so hot, and you distract me so much <laughs> that I can't hit when you're there. Now, I love you more than anything in the world, but I also need to produce for my teammates in corkball. Is it that important for you to be there? Because I can't hit when you're there. So I, I would use that one, that you are so distracted by her beauty and her elegance and her presence that you just can't hit when she's there. Nailed it. Perfect. You're too hot. Yeah. How is she ever going to be upset with that? Right. And if she doesn't believe you and insists on coming, surprise her with a manicure, pedicure gift card, and you've already made the appointment for her, and it just so happens to be during game time. Perfect, yeah. But I like your approach. You're you're just too hot. Distract me. Can't focus. This is why I married you. (laughs) You're babe. Dime. From the 314, dear Uncle Randy, this is interesting. How do I get, how do I become a part of the Cardinals ticket sales team? 
I don't have a college degree, but I know the stadium inside and out. Plus, ticket sales for the Cardinals is my passion. I need to be there. Well, that's a good thing. My recommendation would be to go to Cardinals.com and check that careers tab. Now, the Cardinals do a great job of bringing people in, and I don't know what your age is. If you're in college, they have a sales internship that they actually utilize. Nice. And many of their salespeople graduate into uh, or from that, that internship program. But if you go to the job opportunities page at cardinals.com, uh, we've got, uh, let's see, college students internship programs. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just go down there and take a look at their programs and what they do and fill out an application and see if you can do it. They've got sports service job opportunities. Let me view the job openings quickly for you and see what we've got going. But I, I would recommend getting in touch with the Cardinals. Send an email over to the Cardinals, and they have really good people. And, yeah, take your shot. Just as a general piece of advice, if whether it's Cardinals ticket sales or whatever it is you're interested in, as someone that used to have to book guests for a living, you can generally find anyone's email address online. Yes. If you go to the Cardinals website and you do enough digging on ticket sales, you can likely find a direct email address to someone. Or if you go on LinkedIn and you try to find someone who already works in ticket sales within the Cardinals and they look like they hold a management position, I would shoot them a message. Tell them exactly what you just told us, that this is your passion, this is something that you dream of doing, and you didn't know any other way to get in touch with someone that could potentially open a door for you and most people are amenable to getting messages like that and And, you just have to dig a little right and keep this in mind and once again if you go to the cardinal website this is their dsr program designed to help recent graduates as well as those early in their sports career doesn't give an age here okay early in their sports career to take the next step in professional sports dsrs are primarily responsible for revenue by building strong lasting relationships with our fans this is an entry-level position which provides extensive training that may lead to opportunities to transition to positions in the ticket sales department and other departments within the organization. So learn about that DSR program. Go to cardinals.com and see if you can get involved. Love it. All right, one more, Randy, from the 314. Hey, Uncle Randy, I started seeing a new girl recently. She's from Chicago. She's a Cubs fan. We've been dating for a few months now. I brought her to family functions such as Easter, and I've shared pictures of us on social media, etc. All the while, she's never shared any photos, and I don't think any of her family even knows that I exist. Is this a big deal? How do I bring it up? I love how he had to throw in that she's a Cubs fan, that maybe that's leading her to this behavior. Right. (laughs) I would not worry about social media. Actually, that might work to your advantage. Uh, When she's ready, if this relationship has a chance to blossom, she will introduce you to her friends somehow and her family somehow. It doesn't have to be on social media. I would operate in your world as if social media wasn't even there. Just have a relationship where you are together and you aren't concerning yourself with others and just try to focus on her, making her happy. And don't worry about what she's doing outside of the real world, i.e. in social media. I wouldn't be concerned about that. Focus on your relationship IRL in real life. Yes, it's a good thing. (laughs) Also, if you guys have only been together a couple of months, maybe you're jumping the gun posting all these pictures online. 
It's only a few months. Yeah, that could be. Guys have a tendency to do that. I think we... Do they? Oh, yeah. I, I think guys are much more... They... they Guys fall in love way easier than girls do. What? Yep. Stop. No yep. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. 65780. Yes, we do. Are you serious? Totally serious. I'm. Guys can fall in love on the first date. Well, maybe my guy friends don't fall into this category because I feel like they're always on the fence. Eh, whatever. Don't want to commit. Oh, All my guy friends are not like that. Not that there isn't not, not the married that ones, out obviously. there. But, for example, this person, uh, a couple of months. Yeah, you... See, women are willing to wait it out. They're, because women are generally just, uh, they're more thoughtful in planning out things mm-hmm. like their lives. <laughs> Guys are willing to dive into it. They really are. We're more thoughtful in planning out picnics and our lives. And by the way, yeah, I, I will also point out that <laughs> your generation, I'm 58, you're 34, your generation waits a lot longer to get married than my generation did too. So it's, I, I think people's perceptions of relationships have changed a lot in the last 35, 40 years. I agree. Uh, we're getting, it's amazing how these texts are coming in. Randy, you are wrong. Randy is correct. It's every other text is mm-hmm. one or the other. But if it's a couple months, I know that you're excited about this relationship. And I think it's amazing that you want to share that with everybody. I have to tell you, though, if I was with a guy for a couple months, even if I had met his family, if he hadn't met my family or my friends yet, and it had been a few months and he's posting photos of us doing everything, I would be a little stressed out by that. Because, well, I'm not one to share anything like that online anyway, because if you break up, then you have to do a full clean sweep of everything. Good point. And I don't want to have to deal with that. I don't want to have to go through and untag you and remove the photos and all of that. So I just keep it private. And maybe he needs to have that conversation with her. But after a couple months, maybe pump the brakes. Maybe stop posting the photos and then she'll wonder what's wrong. You know, maybe play a little a little passive-aggressive mind game here with the photos. I don't think we need to play mind games, Michelle. <laughs> and we, I don't think we need to play passive-aggressive. This will get him to fall out of love. I'm, I'm, my thing is, like you said, IRL, just live your life. Try to do it. Try to go out, have a date without a phone. Try to have a date without a, a photograph. Just have fun. What about this one from the 636? Guys fall faster, girls fall harder. Yes, this is exactly right. Okay, yeah. that, that makes sense. Yeah, so well done. Thanks, Michelle. You got to check out the text slide. These are so funny. Okay. Guys fall into infatuation immediately. There you go. We fall into lust, but we we do in a hurry. (laughs) From the 636, my wife must be broken because she told me she wanted to marry me after two months and it took me five years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the, uh, the lack of desire to make a quick commitment. One more from the 618. Randy, I think you mean that guys are quicker to settle. Maybe they fall faster because they're quicker to settle. Yeah, but ultimately they do for a certain amount of period, uh, a certain amount of time at least, a time period, they do fall in love. It might only be for a couple of weeks, but it's hot. Those those first couple of weeks, first couple of months, uh, when you've got the sun just blazing on the relationship. Yeah, and then it cools off. But I'm just saying that they do. They don't. It might not even be love. I think lust is a better word. But guys certainly get into it more than than women do more quickly. All right. Coming up, the (laughs) NFL draft is one week from tomorrow. And uh, Michelle and I are going to rank our top five quarterbacks in the NFL draft next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. (laughs) 
The NFL draft is one week from tomorrow, and some observers believe that quarterbacks might go with the first four picks for the first time in history. Quarterbacks have gone a couple of other times with the first three picks, but never with the first four picks in the draft. So Michelle and I are going to give you our top five quarterbacks heading into the NFL draft. Michelle, why don't you get us started with your number five? All right. Oh, as my computer starts to go off, stand by. Like All right. <laughs> my bad. I forgot to put it on mute. Randy, coming in at num- number five for me as a guy that we've heard a lot about, but it's Trey Lance. He is a kid that has a lot of skill. I think that he has a lot of potential to be great in this league, but I use the phrasing kid because he's only 20 years old. He's only going to be 20 years old when he's picked. He only has 19 games at the college level. And while I think that the skill set is there, I just don't have enough of a sample size to really know what to expect out of him. So that's why I have Trey Lance coming in at number five. Michelle, I'm going kind of off the board here with my number five. I'm going with the 6'5", 236-pound Heisman Trophy finalist Kyle Trask from Florida through 43 touchdowns and single-digit interceptions for 4,283 yards. He did it at the highest level against the SEC, and he's not getting a lot of traction, but he did it even when his receivers were injured for Florida during the season. So I'm going to go with Kyle Trask as my number five. Coming in at number four for me, Randy, is Mac Jones. I know most of the headlines surrounding Mac Jones right now is that the 49ers are going to take him with the number three pick, but I'm not so sure about Mac Jones. Sure, he had a monster 2020 season that resulted in another national championship. He is a guy with a strong arm. He has good accuracy. It seems like the decision-making is there. But when you read the evals on Mac Jones, they're all over the board. Some people think that he's worthy of the number three pick going to San Francisco, and other people don't even know if he's a first-rounder. And it's hard for me to discern just how good he is when he's on a team that's as loaded as this Alabama team is. I don't know if he's that good of a quarterback or if he's a product of his environment and a product of the system. That's why he's coming in at number four for me. And Michelle, I've got Mac Jones at number four as well. And you talk about a product of an environment. I thought that Greg McElroy was going to be a great NFL quarterback. I thought that A.J. McCarron was going to be a great NFL quarterback. I think that Tua has a chance to be a great NFL quarterback. But a Nick Saban college quarterback at Alabama none of them have done anything yet in the NFL so you have to consider hey the the guys played with two top 10 wide receivers in Waddle and Devontae Smith the Heisman Trophy winner he very well could be a product of his environment and really hasn't played enough at the collegiate level for me to be able to get a good gauge so he's my number four also Coming in at number three for me is perhaps the most polarizing quarterback in this draft, and that's Justin Fields out of Ohio State. He is someone that some people think might be the second best quarterback in the draft, and some people are are saying they don't even know if he's worthy of being the fourth or fifth best quarterback in this draft, which is so confusing to me because even though he didn't have great games against Indiana and Northwestern, as someone that's watched a lot of Big Ten football this past season, Indiana had a killer defense, so it's not surprising that they were able to disrupt Justin Fields that day, and I don't think that's something that should be a negative against him. I'm looking more at the Clemson game where he absolutely shined he was able to lead his team to a victory after absorbing that huge hit. He's a dynamic runner. He's a great athlete. I think that he has a lot of potential, and I think that he's the third best quarterback in this draft. Michelle, my number three is Zach Wilson. 
People wouldn't put BYU into the conversation for a national championship because they didn't play anybody. Well, Zach Wilson didn't play anybody. Yes, he did put up good numbers. He had a high percentage. He's a reasonably big guy. He's about the same size as Kurt Warner, 6'2 and an eighth, 214 pounds through 33 touchdown passes. But when I pick a quarterback, I want a guy that has played against defenders that are going to play in the NFL. Zach Wilson didn't play against defenders that are going to play in the NFL. So while I like the skill set, I'm not sure if he can do it. There are other guys that I feel more sure about, and that's why I have Zach Wilson just based on his skill set at number three. And it's that skill set that has me putting Wilson, Randy, at number two. I love his mobility. I love his footwork and his quickness. He's an athletic quarterback. And I think that his running ability is going to be one of the things that sets him apart in this draft and makes him desirable to teams. The way that you look at some quarterbacks now, whether it's a Lamar Jackson or a Russell Wilson, not comparing him to those two guys, but that sort of a skill set has become the mold for a lot of the modern quarterbacks. And I think the fact that Zach Wilson can do both makes him desirable to a lot of NFL teams, so I have him at number two. And I'm going with Justin Fields at number two. I don't get why people don't like Justin Fields. He always throws a lot more touchdowns than interceptions. He always throws for a high completion percentage, nearly a 70% completion percentage in college. He's 6'3", 228. We saw during the season how tough he is. He's a smart guy. I know people complain about his ability to read defenses. You just mentioned that he played uh, against two top 10 defenses in Indiana and Northwestern. Northwestern was the number one defense in the whole league yeah. or in the whole nation. And uh, Justin Fields, to me, is the entire package. I don't see anything that I don't like about Justin Fields. So he's my number two. You don't see anything you don't like about Justin Fields, but he's still not good enough to go number one because of the guy that mm-hmm. we both likely have at number one in Trevor Lawrence. This is... Uh, one of those once in a, a decade, maybe two decade type prospects. I haven't heard a prospect be this hyped since Andrew Luck came out of college and he's just an elite quarterback. He has elite passing talent, excellent mobility. He has the athleticism. He's played at the highest levels on the biggest stage and excelled I don't think there's any negative that I can come up with against Trevor Lawrence. He's number one for me. He is a combination of sunshine in Remember the Titans <laughs> and Prince Charming. He's He, looks he just, is Prince Charming. He looks just like Prince Charming from Shrek. 6'5", almost 6'6", 213 pounds. He'll fill out in that body. He's, he's going to wind up being about the same size as Peyton Manning. He's put up the numbers against great defenses. He's beaten the best in Alabama. He's a charismatic guy. He's a mature guy and came out of high school as the number one guy and gave nobody in his college career any reason to think that he was anything but the number one guy. After his freshman year in college, everybody said he's going to be the number one pick in the draft after Mm -hmm. his junior year, and he should be the number one pick in the draft after his junior year. He is a franchise changer. There's no doubt about it. And there you have it. So there we have have our top five. (laughs) That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, get your text into the Air Comfort Service. Text line 65780. Take it or leave it. It's coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Time for Take It or Leave It on 101 ESPN. Get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line at 65780. Michelle, I'm going to get things started. Okay. 
Playing under Dan Mullen at Mississippi State, Dak Prescott threw 70 touchdowns with 23 interceptions and became a fourth-round pick of the Cowboys. We all know what Dak Prescott has become. Playing under Dan Mullen at Florida, Kyle Trask threw 69 touchdown passes with 15 interceptions. Virtually identical numbers to Dak at Mississippi State. Take it or leave it, Kyle Trask goes in the fourth round and becomes the next next Dak Prescott. Interesting. I mean, the guys are unbelievably similar. Yes. and those... Even in terms of, like, the, their build and uh, obviously the statistics, the teams they played with, very similar. Well, I think the parallels are certainly there. I'm going to leave it only because it is so difficult to determine who's going to be a great franchise quarterback and who's not. How many of these guys, whether they're first-rounders or fourth-rounders, do we look at the tape in college and the body of work and the intangibles and we assign the label of he's going to be a star, he's going to be the franchise quarterback for X amount of years, and then it doesn't work out. So while I do think similarities are there and I get where you're going, I'm going to leave it just because most of these guys don't end up having careers like that. No. You're 100% right. But if you can get him in the fourth round, I'm telling you, if I'm the Steelers, I might even reach for him at the end of the third because he's so similar to Big Ben and have him spend a year behind Big Ben. The Steelers, they've got uh, Dwayne Haskins as their future quarterback right now. If I'm the Steelers, I might spend a number three on Trask and see if he can become my next Big Ben. I'm really fascinated to see who the Steelers' next quarterback is going to be. All right, Randy, so we mentioned the 49ers last segment and how they jumped up to the number three pick in the NFL draft. They've been doing their due diligence, meeting with the various prospects, going to their pro days, etc. But take it or leave it, when they moved up to get that pick, they already had a quarterback in mind. I'm going to take that. And I do believe that when they moved up, they thought it was going to be Mac Jones. But now that they've had a chance to look, I'm not so sure that they're positive that Mac Jones is the guy. Really? Yeah. I tend to think that they knew who their guy was. They moved up to make sure that they could get him. And now everything else is the smokescreen. Even if they're looking at other players and they might be impressed by them. If I made the move and mortgaged some of my draft capital in the future to get that pick because I was so enamored with someone, I'm picking him. And I don't think that you can do that. I don't think you can move up to three to take Mac Jones. I think you can do that for Justin Fields. And if it's clear to you that Lawrence is going one and then the Jets make their move trading Darnold. So number two is going to be Zach Wilson, whoever was going to. I think they actually traded Darnold after the Niners moved up. But you figured that Zach Wilson was going to be number two. If you're the Niners and you say, okay, I can get Justin Fields at number three with that package of ability and experience, I would definitely jump all over that if I were the Niners. So I could see that being the guy, definitely. All right, uh, Emily, what do you have for us? From the 314, take it or leave it, more than two rookie quarterbacks start opening day of the football season. Oh, yeah, I'm going to take that. So you're going to have Wilson. And Lawrence. And Lawrence. So two. There you go. So, but we're going more than two here. Oh, more than two. Um, well, I would imagine whoever goes to San Francisco will not start. Mac Jones. I don't think he's going to start. When we spoke to Nick Wagner, who covers the 49ers mm-hmm. for ESPN, he's under the impression that the 49ers are going to hang on to Jimmy Garoppolo. And if that is, in fact, the case, I can't imagine that they would want to throw their rookie quarterback into the deep end. You hang on to Jimmy Garoppolo so that you can give that quarterback a grace period and a learning period. Okay, so two is a good number. I think two is a fair number. 
from the 314 take it or leave it Bob Gibson would be made a reliever if he came up in today's game I'm going to leave that Bob Gibson and we were talking to Claves about this yesterday about burying guys with 0-2 counts and Bob Gibson had that capability with that slider to get strikeouts on three pitches I don't think that we would need to worry about Gibby throwing 100 pitches over five innings even with the reduced strike zone his control was impeccable control was there and I just can't imagine him only wanting to come in and pitch in certain high leverage situations and and we should point out that he was throwing 140 150 pitches in a game yeah and if you're Mike Schilt and Bob Gibson says get out of here (laughs) you're Mike Schilt and you say okay sir and then you turn around and you go back to the dugout can you imagine Bob Gibson throwing to Yachty Oh, man. Who wins that battle if Yachty calls a pitch and Bob Gibson doesn't like it and they have words? I don't want to. I want to see it, but I'm also afraid to see it. I think at the end of the day, because the pitcher has to throw the pitch, I think Gibby would win that one. I think he would win it, too. But I would like to be a fly on the wall in the dugout to hear the conversation afterwards. Yeah. We'll ask Wayno coming up at 9 o'clock whether he has to think while he's on the mound. Good question. From the 636, take it or leave it, the Cardinals exceed a win streak of four games this season. I'm going to take it. That's a really good one. I think four games is a good starting point, and I'm going to take it too. Out of 162, they're going to have a five-game winning streak. Definitely. But but I say that's a good number because I don't have faith in the offense to provide enough consistently after likely four games. This This feast or famine has got to end. Oh, it will. And you know what? They'll they'll win five in a row, and they'll have a couple of those games where they only score two. Two to nothing, two to yep. one games. Yep. Also from the 314, take it or leave it, Dylan Carlson will win Rookie of the Year and his first gold club this season. I'm going to leave that. I don't think that a rookie is going to win, well, Betts plays right field, so he's not going to win the gold glove. He's going to wind up playing right field. And in center field, he's not going to win center field gold glove either, mm-hmm. all due respect. Rookie of the Year? He's in the convo. Yeah. Got a long way to go, but he's in the conversation. But he's in the the mix. Yep. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. We appreciate it. Coming up next, our fresh take here on 101 ESPN. Tom Verducci had an interesting piece at Sports Illustrated about mental health in baseball, and it is a serious issue, and we're going to talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. is 8.04 in St. Louis. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler, Carriker and Smallman, and it's time for today's Fresh Take. And Michelle, really interesting and kind of alarming piece by Tom Verducci at SI.com talking about the mental health dilemma that is gripping Major League Baseball at the moment. Former Cardinal Ryan Sheriff of Tampa Bay, he pitched well for them down the stretch and in the postseason last year. In the second game of the season, Kevin Cash puts him into a two-run game and Uh, Ryan Sheriff told Tom Verducci, as soon as I towed the rubber, I felt nothing. No emotions, no adrenaline, nothing. I thought, wow, what am I doing here if I don't feel a damn thing? We're winning 2-0. It's the seventh inning. That's when I knew I had to leave. 
And so he did. He retired. The next day, Angels pitcher Ty Buttry quit baseball. Four days after that, the former Astro Chris Stavinsky, who had a really good career with the Astros, left the Diamondbacks. And then seven days after that, Phillies outfielder Adam Hazley left baseball. And this on the heels of last year, Andrelton Simmons leaving the Angels to deal with depression and suicidal thoughts before joining the Twins for this season. And these players went through a lot. They didn't make a living for a good part of last year. Uh, like a lot of us, they were they were beholden to their homes, handcuffed to their homes. But these are guys that spend their lives being outside, playing a game, and then going out and doing things. And all of that came to a halt. And now they're in a situation like where Ryan Sheriff is, where you're, you're saying, how important is this? You get on the mound and you don't feel any emotion, any competitive drive. There's so many layers to this story, and we obviously look at it through the lens of baseball and through the lens of sports, and there's added stressors that come with being a professional athlete. My initial thought when I read this was I think a lot of people in today's world are dealing with a lot of mental health issues, Mm -hmm. especially in the wake of a pandemic when our lives are changed and a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people were dealing with death or illness, and they're worried about their children. They're worried about educating their children. They're worried about putting food on the table. And then on top of that, you can't go out and have that emotional release because we can't go anywhere and we can't do anything. And I I think the the pressures of society are even greater. And then imagine on top of that being a professional athlete where you live in a world that is performance-based, that is results-based, but you have to absorb that criticism and absorb that pressure in real time. A lot of us have more of a macro view of pressure where these guys, they're going out there and they're get, being given a ball if they're a pitcher, mm-hmm. and they know in that instance, if they mess up, they're going to have to feel it immediately. And th- there's a lot of talk about social media and how that contributes to right. a lot of the mental health issues that these baseball players are feeling. But a lot of us can I, can relate to this and identify with this, but I think when you look at it like this, these guys are willing to give up hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, in some cases, millions of mm-hmm. dollars, and a dream that they have chased their entire life because the mental health pressure and the mental health issues that they're dealing with are so severe. I, I mean, if that's not something that we're paying attention to, we should, because I think a lot of people look at it like, well, well, I'm burnt out, I'm stressed out, I'm dealing with these things, and I understand that, but but would you walk away from all of this? Right, and, and you, you talk about the money, and the minimum in baseball is a little over half a million dollars, and Verducci talked to one agent who has a client who stepped away from the game and said he asked the Players Association how many players are on the restricted list with mental health-related issues and was told more than a dozen. Unlike players who have physical injuries and are placed on the injured list, those with mental health issues don't receive pay or service time if they're placed on the restricted list, as is the case with Sheriff Buttry, Devensky, and Hazley. Now, this is a problem that baseball should solve now, today, because this is just another assault on what is a real thing, mental health issues. And if baseball is not going to count mental health as health and pay people while they're dealing with those issues, then nobody is going to, well, I won't say nobody, but many players aren't going to admit that they have a problem. And that's where you run into suicides. If you have people that feel like there's no way out, they've got a mental issue, but they can't go anywhere with it because they'll lose their income and there's no place to turn, that's where suicides occur, and that's a huge 
issue in our country now. So many people, I think it's one of the top five causes of death among people under 30 is suicide. Wow. So that, that's a, a huge issue that baseball should deal with. And baseball ownership should deal with today is to pay these players that are dealing with mental health issues. Absolutely. And this is an organization, or I, rather I should say a league, that's generating billions of dollars of revenue. And if you can pay the money to make sure that each team has a top-notch medical staff and trainers on hand to make sure that their bodies are right and performing at an elite level, then you also need to take care of the mental health aspect mm -hmm. of this. And I think we look at professional athletes and we think about all of the glory that comes with being a professional athlete, all the positives, all the perks, but the stress and the pressure is something that while it is part of the job, not every human being is equipped to deal with that mentally and they should be given the resources to be able to cope with that. You and I are in a, a position where we have a platform. It will never be normal to me to check my mentions or my DMs and have people saying vile or perverted things to me. It is never something that you normalize and it takes a toll on you. And I cannot imagine what a professional athlete deals with if they open their social media and every single day they're having strangers come at them with with hatred and vitriol and tell them how much they suck. And one of the problems is, is that a, among a younger generation, one of the, the causes of, one of the precursors of mental illness is an addiction to social media. So these are young people, high profile, as you mentioned, that are getting ripped because... Social media in general, Twitter specifically, is a dark, dark place. Mm -hmm. But these people want to go and see what people are saying about them. And it's generally negative, And they just spiral downward. So I think what baseball needs to do, and this is something that I hate to give the NFL credit, but they've done a good job of getting to their players and pointing out to them what the stressors are in their rookie symposium. And... Getting them to understand that mental health is a real thing mm -hmm. that, that and lack of mental health is a real thing. And I think that's what baseball needs to do. They need to have somebody in charge of the mental health of their players because it is becoming an epidemic in baseball. You would think that every professional athlete should have access to a therapist yep. or to some licensed mental health professional to help them deal with this stuff. That doesn't seem like it's that outrageous of an ask. And I also think if you're a professional athlete, you you come from a space where the ego is really pervasive and where you're put on a pedestal and you're likely someone that has hidden things that have bothered you your entire life, whether it's physical or mental. So for you to say that you need help or to seek that out, that's likely a really big step in itself. And having those resources available should be a no-brainer for these teams. Yeah, it should be. And that probably should part of it be part of a new CBA. One other point I want to make, and the managerial game has changed dramatically, but just think about... As tough as Tony LaRusa is, and I love Tony, I think he's great, but I can imagine if somebody that does have a mental issue goes into the manager's office with Tony LaRusa, I wonder if Tony has a great appreciation for it. He's 76 years old, and he comes from a tough, tough, tough generation, and he probably says, deal with it, come back tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I, I, Mike Schilt, I'm sure, would be completely different. Mike Schilt is new school. But I have to believe there's more than just one manager that probably says to his, a player that comes in, says, there's no such thing as mental illness. It's all in your head. 
or they take the approach like we just got from the 636 that said just turn off the social media. Yeah. And it's not that simple. A lot of these athletes have endorsements that they need to promote things on social media. And I'm kind of sick of the person who's being attacked or the person that's having to deal with other people's issues being the one that has to walk away. Why isn't the conversation reframed as to why are people so angry? Why are people sending such hateful mm-hmm. things? Why don't we talk about that portion of this? Why is an athlete who's just trying to exist and do their job supposed to just assume that this is part of the job? Because that should not be part of the job. Do they have to answer questions post game? in direct correlation to their performance? Yes, and that's difficult enough. Can you imagine if after every show we had to go to a press conference and someone said, well, Randy, at 8.45, that tease, not so great. Didn't make me want to tune into the next segment. Explain yourself. That would be taxing after a while. If if you work in accounting and you fudge a number, can you imagine having to walk into a room with 50 people knowing that millions of other people are watching and explain yourself day in and day out? Some people don't have the personality for that. It's not normal. And unfortunately, because of how rabid sports fans are and how evil they can be, heck, these people knocked Chris Long, who's as <laughs> nice and kind and caring a person as there is. When Chris Long has to quit Twitter, and he did while he was playing here, because of mean people, it does tell you a lot about the the people that are on Twitter. And I, I know the question is, why don't we do something about it? But how can you do something about it? And... As someone who loves sports, Chris Long was such a great representative for our community and for our city and for that organization. And it's fun as a sports fan to get that side of athletes. It's fun to be able to see what they're interested in outside of sports or if they tweet something and you also love it, you have a deeper connection to them. It's such a double-edged sword, social media, because we love that we get access to players 24-7 and they likely love that they can control the narrative and share parts of themselves with fans and they get to do it them they get to do it themselves but with that you have to deal with so many things and i just think to to bring it all back together that there should be definitely resources available for them to deal with the mental health aspect of this and i think every workplace in america not just sports needs to take this into consideration and provide resources for people because the stigma needs to go away mental health is just as important as physical health it's a must read piece by tom verducci at si.com now michelle said that i would have some reporters that are going to ask about a tease so i'm at randy (laughs) character on twitter Um, more radio coming up next Oh. <laughs> We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Yesterday, Mike Tomlin signed a three year extension with the Steelers that will give him 18 years as the head coach of the Steelers by the end of the contract. Now, are we going to have Don Shula's anymore who coached for 33 years or even Tony who uh, managed for 16 years with the Cardinals? The question is, what coach or manager in sports now could equal the 18 years that Mike Tomlin is going to wind up with as the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers? And, Michelle, it is a select few, and I think we can start with the fact that in the NHL, everybody gets fired. The, yes. the the average lifespan of an NFL coach or NHL coach is kind of like a gnat. They, <laughs> they just don't last very long. That's very true. So you're right. I didn't even look at the NHL 
when it came to this conversation. I actually went straight to the NFL because I do think that certain coaches might get a longer leash than others and might be given the opportunity, at least, to be in the league as long as Mike Tomlin. The first name that pops out at me, Randy, is Sean McVay. Absolutely. It's Sean McVay, not only because of his age at 35, because he's likely going to be in the league for at least as long as Mike Tomlin, but he came out hot. He was a highly touted young coach, and he came into the Rams. He immediately had them finishing first in the division the following year. Not only did they finish first in the division, but they went to the Super Bowl, inevitably losing to the Patriots, obviously. And the 2019, not ideal for him, but in 2020, they were second in the division again, and it just seems like, I mean, think about this. He's coached for four years, and he already basically has his own coaching tree. Yeah. So, I I don't know if it's going to be with the Rams, but I do see them hanging on to him because he's a young, flashy, young genius-type quarterback for a long time. The one that I've picked, and I don't know if this is cheating or not, is John Harbaugh. Because he's only a year behind Tomlin, and he's only 58 years old. I could see Harbaugh with his energy coaching for another dozen years. I I could see him being a guy that coaches for 25 years in the NFL, and that's such a stable organization. They give their coaches the opportunity to make a mistake or two. Brian Billick lasted there a long time. Since they moved to Baltimore in 1996, they've only had... Three coaches, it's March Broda, Billick, and Harbaugh. So I could I could absolutely see Harbaugh being one of those guys. I'm completely on board with you uh, about Sean McVay. The other one is, and he just signed an extension too, Sean Payton, mm-hmm. who's been around since 06. And you, you have to think that he probably can coach there as long as he wants. Oh, I would think so. It would. I would be shocked if he ever got fired from New Orleans. He's been around with the Saints for 14 years, and he's only 57 years old. So he's another guy that, depending on what happens with the quarterback situation, because that's always a part of it, Tomlin has had Roethlisberger for his whole career. Peyton has had Breeze for his whole career. So that's essentially what it comes down to is, does a guy have a young quarterback that that he can stick around with for a long time? And that's one thing with Sean McVay that we just don't know about. They want... Matthew Stafford to play for six or seven more years, but we don't know if he's going to. I tended to look at this more as coaches who didn't have that seasoning, didn't have that tenure that potentially could, could get there. Could go could for a long run. That's why I picked Sean McVay, who's only been in the league yep. for four years. I also wrote down Kyle Shanahan, who's only been in the league for four years. He's 41 years old. He's already been to a Super Bowl, and he's he's got that pedigree. He's obviously got his family who has been in the NFL for a long time, his father. And it just seems like he is a guy like Sean McVay that could be around for a really, really long time. Another guy, let's go to the NBA, because I'm really impressed by and intrigued by Steve Nash, who's in his first year, young coach with the Brooklyn Nets. And obviously that group isn't going to be around for a long time. But he seems to have some Eric Spolstra in him, in that he is able to adapt to the style of game that they play and still win they they can win without Harden without Durant without Irving they're still finding ways to win in Brooklyn so I think he's one of those guys that as an up-and-comer like a, a Sean McVay I think he could last a long time in the NBA 
I have one in college football, too. My pick was Ryan Day, who is at Ohio State. He's only 42. He's obviously been with the program for a while, since 2017. And it seems like he just was able to take over, and there was no transition period. Ohio State never lost a beat with him as the head coach. And in college football, Yes, the window seems to be about three years to get something done. But since Ryan Day took over, they're still always in the national championship conversation. They're in the playoff. And I think if you're Ohio State, you're looking at an Alabama or a Clemson. And part of the reason reasons that those two programs have been so successful is because of the consistency. Mm-hmm. So I would want to make sure to keep a guy like Ryan Day around as long as the team looks like they're in a position to have success as long as I could. How about a school with a young coach and a program? with a history of stability, and that would be Eli Drinkwitz. They kept Pinkle around for 15 years. Drink is 36. Uh, they're doing what they need to do financially. They're upgrading the facilities. They're in a conference where he has a chance to win every year. It's not like he's in the MAC where uh-huh. he doesn't have a chance to win a national championship. Yes, but part of that has to be the coach's desire to also stay there for a decade plus. And, and he's, this is the guy that talks to Gary Pinkle every day. And Pinkle says, hey, yeah, you can win here. I I won here. So I wonder if that's what his desire would be. Because Maybe. if you win the SEC, if, if you, as we've seen, Mizzou a couple of times was a game away from playing in the national championship game. But are those the expectations? What are the realistic expectations for Mizzou and for Eli Drinkwitz? Because if he's in that job five, six years, and they aren't still a program that's considered a national championship contender, do you move on? If they're competitive in the SEC, Mm -hmm. but they're not in that playoff conversation, is that good enough for you? If you're a Mizzou fan, is that good enough? Yeah. Yeah. Well, then I could see him sticking around for a while. Because I tend to think that because they're in the SEC and because of Gary Pinkle's success and the fact that they were right there on the cusp, that if you're competitive in the SEC, even even though that's something that you would right now say that you would love, if you're competitive in the SEC for four or five seasons, all of a sudden that becomes not good enough. The goalpost moves. The target moves. I think at Mizzou, you can have seven and fives, eight and fours, and then have your odd 10 and 2. And by the way, everything's off the table when 69-year-old Saban leaves the SEC. Everything changes then. But you look at where the program is right now, it has a chance to do some really good things. One other one I want to throw out there for you, and I don't know if this is a possibility or not, but what about Dave Roberts? Can he stick around for 25 years? I think let's, it, let's put it at 18. Let's, can, can Dave Roberts stick around for 18 years? I think the potential's there. I think it is, too they'll likely be really good for a long time. Once you once you win, that gives you certain equity. And he's going to have players because they're going to have money. Yeah. So unless he becomes... It's kind of the easiest job in sports, is it not? Yeah, it kind of should be. <laughs> you just have to yep. really make sure that the motivation stays there and that the personalities don't get too cluttered. He's got six years under his belt already. So... Could he last another dozen? I could very easily see that happening, especially in L.A. I could, too. Yeah. So those are some guys, but Tomlin, good for him. He's going to wind up with at least 18, probably 20 in Pittsburgh. Because he's still a young guy, too.
Incredible. That's amazing. I know we always talk about him in glowing terms, but I still don't think he gets enough love. He deserves yeah, more love he than he gets. Yeah. David Perron, the Blues winger, joins us for his weekly visit next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. He gets the job done on the ice every night. Joins Carriker and Smallman right now. Harani scores on 101 ESPN. Driven by Pure Performance, the only stop for all your aftermarket vehicle needs. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carriker, we head right to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line and say good morning to Blues Winger David Perron. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How about you? Everything's good. Hey, I want to start with this. When when things aren't going your way, kind of a two-part question. From a team or a personal standpoint, are you very superstitious? And if things aren't going your way, do you change things up? Um, I mean, there are things that I do that uh, if, if you knew what they were, you might think they were superstitious. But I think over the years, uh, I started to, uh, to kind of build a routine that I just kind of keep doing that and you kind of fall in love with the routine. It, it, I feel like it prepares you. It's like a puzzle. It prepares you uh, to have the right mindset going into a game um, for you individually as a team, everything. So uh, that's that's kind of what I go off of. And, yeah, like maybe, maybe little things that you change uh, around a little bit. But um, over the last uh, several years, I haven't really changed much. David, you said some of the things, if we knew what they are, we might characterize them as superstitious. Can you give us an example? Well, I like to drive like the rink the same way every day, uh, or at least uh, on game night, kind of take the same route to, to, to downtown. Um, just like basically from the moment I get up to, to game time, uh, I know what the day's going to look like. And um, again, if, if something doesn't happen exactly the way that, I normally do it. It's not like it's, it's going to be make or break, but it does uh, feel like uh, a good routine for me from even eating the same same thing around the same time uh, uh, for lunch, all that stuff after after a morning skate, uh, nap time, all that stuff, going to a rink around similar time. Uh, yeah, so from that point on, uh, I like to say something to, to each guy after our, our warm-up in the room, whether it's kind of a joke or something that happened in the recent days that just kind of fun memories or something that happened. Uh, let's say in a normal year, you, you do something and it's, something turns out to be funny with the guys. I bring it up to him again. So just little things like that. Some other guys like to be more serious. So you kind of keep it short with those guys, uh, just depending what the mood of the team needs. Hey, David, one, one other thing about superstitions. Is the number 57 a superstition for you? How did that come about that you wear 57? Um, no, it's not a superstition. 57 was a training camp number and basically still is in a way because uh, they just gave it to me my first year. I came here. I was 19. You just kind of get a jersey for training camp with a number that you don't really choose, uh, or at least back in those days, you definitely weren't choosing. And uh, once I ended up making the team kind of out of out of nowhere, they, they weren't expecting me to be around. Um I, I just kind of never asked to change. Uh, I thought they would ask me eventually, and 
And they did maybe, I think it was after a year or maybe a year and a half, they were like, hey, are you sure you want to keep that number? And I was like, well, <laughs> by, now, by now I'm used to it and I like it, but I, I wish you asked me a year ago. So uh, it's kind of how it turned out. And it's funny, it's interesting, because when I was young, like uh, maybe eight, nine years old, there's a year I did play with 57. So I always fell back to that a little bit and thinking it's a unique number. It's It's kind of... It's nice to kind of you go like I went through several other teams and and you know you can have that number pretty much if, if that does happen and um, I mean now it would be too late to even think of changing uh, people kind of know me for that number and and I do like it now. It's so funny how things like that work out because now fifty seven is such a part of you. It's your identifier. You're DP fifty <laughs> seven. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's exactly it. I wouldn't I wouldn't go uh, against it. And I think if there was a year I would I went to Pittsburgh to. There was another player on the team that had it. I had to go 39, which was my junior number, and it just didn't feel right. So um, I'm glad I can I can have 57 on my back again and uh, obviously playing for the Blues. We're glad too, David. Well, I wanted to ask you, you're, the team's coming off two tough losses, and when we read things post-game or we listen to Chief talk, it seems like the buzzword in the past few weeks has been fragile. So when you hear your coach describing your team as fragile, how do you receive that? Well, he's right. Like, we, we're we really uh, in tune with our coaching staff. I think they've done an ex- excellent job of uh, always providing us with what we need uh, at all different times. And we haven't always responded the right way, but I know they're doing the right, right things. Uh, I think fragile, for, for me, it means that we come out with the game with the right mindset, with the right attitude. We play the right way in the first period, the last, those last two games. And we just don't find a way to sustain it in, in the second period. So we just we just break a little too easily. And it's really not um, they prepare us right because we come out the right way. We, we do the things they need to do. And we expect, obviously, the other team to push in the second. We know their coach is probably going to go in there and either uh, give them trouble a little bit or the players talk within themselves. They know they have to be better. And we just got to find a way to, to meet that and, and hopefully exceed that and um, our third periods have, have been fine as well. It's just uh, when we when we've had those good starts, we just didn't sustain it, and obviously it's it's not acceptable at this time of the year. But I think that's what he means, and um, it's it's a never-ending process. I brought it up with you before. Um, it's always you go back to rank the next day, and you have to keep working. David Barron is with us on 101 ESPN. David, along those lines, Tyler Bozak said after the game against Arizona, he said it's hard to maintain aggressiveness. And we're sitting there watching on TV. So we're saying, why can't you maintain aggressiveness? What makes it difficult to maintain aggressiveness when you have a 2 nothing lead in the second period? I mean, the, the, it does change a little bit as far as, you know, you're up to goal. There's no point to try and force an extra play to, that's maybe going to generate a a breakaway or a two-on-one, a scoring chance that would come out of nowhere where let's say if you're down 3-1 with five minutes left in the third, you're probably trying to play and see. Uh, you're kind of playing percentages every time you touch the puck. Where where should I put the puck to uh, to make our team better for it? And um, sometimes it, it makes us uh, slowly and slowly by not putting the pucks necessarily in the right spots. Our forecheck is a staple of our team, and if we come off of that just a little bit, it just opens up more space for the other team. And uh, I, I, I can't know exactly what he's talking about other than that's what I'm thinking he's talking about. Um, and again, like the fact that the other team, like I said, are, are going to come out a little bit more hungry, a little bit more pissed off, uh, combined with that sometimes it, it can really push, push you on your heels. And they find a way to get a, a goal, a lucky goal, whatever, it changes the whole momentum. So... 
Um, it's still a good team's find a way to not let that happen. We, we've done that plenty of times on both sides. Uh, over over my career, I've seen it on both sides. and um, it's, a, it's a fine line, and uh, I know that we can grab it still. David, not anything will ever be as severe as the bubble was, but this still has been a really weird year for NHL players. You can't really go out whether you're on the road or you're here. You're still having to do testing. The construct of the schedule is different. You have travel. The fan capacity isn't there. I'm, I'm not asking for excuses, but I'm just curious if all of those things, the different things that you're dealing with this season, have taken their toll at all with the team. Um, I, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but yeah, like I think – for me, it has a little bit. Just um, when we get cancellations out of nowhere, and it's, there's been like three different reasons really that that it's happened. So you understand maybe once or twice, and we get that COVID, we have to expect something maybe like this would happen. Um, it just hasn't happened really because of our team too. So it's it's been a little bit frustrating. If if it happens to your team, you kind of have to be take a seat back a little bit, understand the situation, um, get the guys that have possibly COVID or whatever, um, get them like obviously healed and all that stuff. But it has been um, a little bit frustrating. We were trying to, to, to find our, our momentum. We're, we were starting to get there, and then all of a sudden we get more cancellations. So um, it's a little bit disappointing. The Minnesota one, the, the one against Colorado, I saw there's another uh, player last night from Colorado that might have tested positive and who knows, like, is the game uh, tomorrow on the line still? We don't know. Well, that's something that we, we know uh, day by day, hour by hour, just like anyone else, and we got to go with it. David, when you guys are playing your best, you set the tempo, you take the game to the opposition, you maintain puck possession in the offensive zone. Uh, this is an easy question to ask and probably a tough one to answer, but how do you do that? How do you take the game to a team like Colorado tomorrow night if you play them? Because to me, even now, uh, you guys have lost some players, but if if the Blues set the tempo in the game, they can beat anybody in the league. So how do you do it? That, that that's what I love about our team is we truly have that belief that like we can beat anyone if we do that. And I know it's it's a big if, but at the same time we know it, we've we've just done it time and time again. We've we've shown it even this year. We've shown that we can still do it. And uh, yeah, I mean I think it's it's each individual we got we got to look at each other in the mirror and, and know that what's required of us to to have success as a team as individuals. And maybe you're not a guy that's used to putting it deep all the time or maybe you're not a guy that's got to block a shot but those are all key details at this time of the year that's needed that's required and that's the way for us to to have success we're we're right there we're still in the mix uh just as much as the arizona coyotes a couple other teams and uh, we we got to find the, the way to do it it's, it's going to be a, a heck of a feeling going into the playoffs if, if we do that um again i think i mentioned it to, to you guys before playing colorado or vegas whoever's got we would end up playing in the first round. I, I think both those teams are they're hoping to get the other matchup. So um, we'll see where it goes. But uh, again, the belief is still there in the room, and, and we got to keep pushing forward. Mr. Perron, it's always great to have your voice, and we always appreciate you uh, stepping up and being with us every week here on 101 ESPN. We can't thank you enough. Go get them tomorrow, and next time we talk, hopefully you have a couple more wins under your belt. Absolutely. Not a problem. Thanks a lot. Take see care, ya. David. That's Bye. our friend David Perron on 101 ESPN. Every time we speak to him every week, I feel more confident about the team. Yeah. And I love the way that he leads, how he talks about part of his superstition is saying something funny or making sure he talks to every single yeah. person before they go out. It's 
That's awesome. Yeah. And explained the, the fragile question, I thought, very well. I thought so, too. Uh, I, I was supposed to ask for a fighter earlier. Did we get a fighter? We're good with a fighter. That's <laughs> okay, good. Because I, I forgot. I kind of have the uh, the radio ADD. So Emily can literally tell me something five seconds before we go on the air, and then I'll forget it. I forget everything. <laughs> also, I don't think people realize how much we Ron Burgundy things. Sometimes oh, people totally. will hand us a sheet, and we just read it. Yeah. <laughs> we can say anything, and we just read it. We do have a late edition of The Fight coming up next, and then at the top of the hour, Adam Wainwright on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Character and Smallman here on 101 ESPN, a late edition of the fight today, but we had to bump it because we had our weekly visit with David Perron. And David Perron takes precedence. I'm sorry to all the fighters out there, especially our fighter today. Sam is with us. Sam is going to be Randy's competition. What's up, Sam? How you doing? I'm doing okay. A little nervous, but you know, taking on Randy's no easy task. Don't be nervous, Sam. I have confidence in you, so you should have confidence in yourself. (laughs) Good. Okay, thanks. You can do it, Sam. We believe in you. All right, here's question number one. On this day in 1989, former President George W. Bush became the joint CEO of which Major League Baseball team? Was it the Houston Astros, the Texas Rangers, or the Arizona Diamondbacks? The Rangers. Happy 41st birthday to four-time Pro Bowler Tony Romo. Where did Tony Romo play college football? Eastern Illinois, Murray State, or Western Kentucky? Mm, Romo, Romo. Uh, I'll go Murray State. Sam, which legendary blue did the franchise draft in the seventh round of the 1982 NHL draft? Was it Rod Brindamore, Doug Gilmore, or Brett Hall? Before 82. What are them? What are the what are the list again? Sure. The question is: Which legendary blue did the franchise draft in the seventh round of the 1982 NHL draft? The options are Rod Brindamore, Doug Gilmore, or Brett Hall. Uh, Gilmore. And with the MLS coming to St. Louis, I thought this might be a fun question. Who won the 2020 MLS Cup playoffs? The Seattle Sounders FC, Columbus Crew SC, or Minnesota United FC? Who won last year? Yes. This is the most recent winner. Seattle. Okay, we're checking our score here. Randy is in the hallway. Just to pull the curtain back a little bit, our segment... Our next segment is with Adam Wainwright, and he's being his, his hits are being sponsored by Chick-fil-A, and they dropped off Chick-fil-A for us. So we're all kind of in a tizzy because Chick-fil-A is in the studio. But Randy is here. Yeah. Randy, say hello to Sam. Sam, good morning. How you doing? Doing great. Good. Thanks for hey, listening. That was, a, 
that was a great interview with Peron. I love listening to you guys. You do an excellent job. I, I really enjoyed listening to you guys every day. Thank you very much, Sam. Our goal is to be fair. We aren't going to bring somebody on the air. And David, David brings it us the, the true answers. We don't need to go too far to get what's happening out of him. He's great. He's the best. And thanks, oh, yeah. Sam. You ask the right question, then he answers them. That's yep. what I love about it. Thank you. He is a great representative for that organization. He, really he always gives the best answers to the toughest questions. All right, Randy, question number one. On this day in 1989, former President George W. Bush became the joint CEO of which Major League Baseball team? So he wasn't this the George W. He was the joint CEO. And who was his joint CEO with him? He was the Texas Rangers joint CEO with one William O. DeWitt. Mm. Mm-hmm. Happy 41st birthday to four-time Pro Bowler Tony Romo. Where did Tony Romo play college football? I believe he was a Panther at, is it a Panther at Eastern Illinois? He played at Eastern Illinois University. Ah. <laughs> Randy, which legendary blue did the franchise draft in the seventh round of the 1982 NHL draft? Seventh round, 1982, and legendary. Mm-hmm. So probably came up in 84, 85. I'll do the lifeline here. Is it Rod Brindamore, Doug Gilmore, or Brett Hull? It's Dougie Gilmore. And who won the 2020 MLS Cup playoffs? 2020 MLS Cup playoffs. So Atlanta had won the year before Minnesota. Um, okay, so this is last year. Let me think about this. Was it one of the New Yorks? Oh, no. I think it was um, uh, Columbus Crew. Ooh, Emily, fire that sounder. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. The winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. The fight sponsored by Ryan Kelly and HeroLoan.com. Check out how they help veterans and service members at the new and improved HeroLoan.com. Randy just rubbing it in, Sam. He's doing the Sammy Sosa, pounding his chest, kissing the sky, arms open to the heavens. But as you heard, he did get all four correct. He got the jack. And I am so impressed that you knew the MLS question, Randy. Columbus Crew almost went out of business, almost moved to Austin. And like what happened in Europe, the fans saved Columbus Crew, and that's why I knew. Incredible. I think a lot of us here were so excited about our MLS team, but we're going to have to get up to speed on, yeah. on what's been happening in the MLS. All right, let's run through our our answers here. So former President George W. Bush became the joint CEO of the Texas Rangers. Tony Romo played his college football at Eastern Illinois. And shout out to Eastern Illinois. I've had some many fun nights in Charleston. Oh, Let yeah. me tell you, the people at Eastern Illinois, they know how to have a good time. With Sean Payton, Eastern Illinois. That's right. Respect. Uh, the Blues drafted Doug. Gilmore in the seventh round of the 1982 NHL draft, and it was the Columbus Crew SC, Columbus Crew SC, who won the 2020 MLS Cup playoffs. So, Sam, you got two correct, but unfortunately, Randy got all four. But thank you for listening, and thank you for playing. Oh, thank you. It was fun. Thank you, Sam. Have a great day. Sam with us on 101 ESPN, and Adam Wainwright will join us coming up with Carriker and Smallman. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Getting you inside the cards. A pump of the fist from Adam Wainwright. This is 
Carriker and Smallman with Cards pitcher Adam Wainwright. Wainwright, 23rd complete game of his career. Absolutely remarkable. On 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Chick-fil-A, where you can earn points on your next order with the Chick-fil-A One app at any of our 16 St. Louis area locations. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker, 101 ESPN. It's 902. The time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. And Cardinals right hander Adam Wainwright does join us on the Brown and Crouppen celebrity, celebrity Line. We're going to talk about big league impact later in the interview. But right now, we wish you uh, wish Adam a good morning. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Doing great. How are you all doing? Adam, we're doing exceptionally well and you might have heard the intro there your interview weekly with us is now sponsored by chick-fil-a and chick-fil-a came in and they dropped off a bunch of breakfast sandwiches so we are in a great mood but i need to know because people are going to be able to support big league impact by supporting chick-fil-a what is adam wainwright's chick-fil-a order because when i go to chick-fil-a i want to get what adam wainwright gets (laughs) uh it depends on the eating circumstance honestly if i if I'm going somewhere to sit at a table and and if I'm going in the st- in the restaurant like back in the old days when people used to eat inside restaurants and then uh if I'm going to take it home and eat it at the counter or something or the table and I get a 12 pack of nuggets I get I think it's a number 3 now it used to be a number 5 or maybe it's a number 2 now is a 12 pack of nuggets I get an Arnold Palmer and uh, I get an extra 12 pack cuz I'm kind of a hog um <laughs> But if I'm eating while I'm driving, then you can't be, you know, dipping nuggets in Polynesian and 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 driving safe. So I go with the old number one Chick Fil A sandwich, original and and uh, Arnold Palmer. That's the I, the Arnold Palmer is a new one for me because I always got a sweet tea back, you know, my whole life or whatever. But now, you know. It just it's kind of refreshing. It may be me in my old age now, but um, yeah, that's what I'm getting. Nothing quite hits like an Arnold Arnold Palmer, and I appreciate that you have a situational eating approach. But I have to ask you, what's your condiment of choice? Because that's part of the Chick Fil A experience. Whether it's Chick Fil A sauce, Polynesian sauce, like you mentioned, and they also have a honey mustard that just slaps. Polynesian my whole life. It, okay. you know, back when I was a kid, it was Chick-fil-A. It was uh, sweet and sour, and they changed it to Polynesian. I can still remember the, the time they changed it to, the name to Polynesian, and I was thinking, oh, man, they just ruined the best sauce ever. But same sauce, different name. So that was fine. But um, if I'm eating those 24 nuggets, I will, I'll go two Polynesians and one Chick-fil-A in the middle of that Ooh. Chick-fil-A sauce. Nice. Yeah. Wow! So you got to mix. You got to mix it up. What did Andre Agassi <laughs> used to say? Uh, um, what did he say? He he said uh, something is the spice of life. It's you know you got to mix it up. So <laughs> Adam Wainwright with us on 101 ESPN. Wayno, a very uncharacteristic uh, letdown from your bullpen last night after you had pitched brilliantly for seven innings, and that's not going to happen very often. This is a, a really really good bullpen. I wanted to ask you though, as you became a starter in 2007, and you were a starter at the minor league level too. Were you ever one of those guys who got bothered by the fact that your bullpen didn't hold the lead? And if that was the case, when did that change? No, you can't get bothered by that because especially from, from the way I have pitched 
throughout this season. I've you know I've pitched five innings almost every time until this time, and and so you know you do that three times in a row, you can't be and you're leaving your bullpen on the hook for four innings. You can't be very well disappointed when they don't come through when you when when you finally pitch past the fifth. So no, I, I, baseball is a, a funny game. As soon as you, it, it's kind of like uh, being a reliever, right? You like, man, I'm not pitching enough, and, and you complain, and you, I'm, I'm just not pitching enough. And then the first time you do that, then you pitch four days in a row, and you go, man, I'm pitching too much. So um, it, it's just one of those things where baseball has a way of working itself out. The bullpen on our team is excellent. They've been great all year. When I told Gio last night, because he came in, he was so disappointed in himself. He was he was upset that he didn't get the job done for, for me and for the for the whole team. I said, dude, you are the guy that I wanted in that spot. You are, and he is—he is such a pro's pro. He's—if you look at his demeanor, he is as cool as ice under any circumstance that you can throw him into. He's always ready. He takes the ball every day. He's our guy. You know, he's—he's he's one of the best setup men in baseball. And uh, I was—I was glad he got the ball. He just didn't get it done last night, but he's going to do it next time. And next time, after I—if I come out after seven or eight. You know, he's one of the guys I want them to hand the ball to him and him and Alex Reyes. I just can't think of anybody better at the end of the game than Jordan Hicks. We got we got three or four guys down there that are are locked down legitimate closers on on many teams. You know, so we have just an excellent bullpen and uh, I'm just glad we have them down there. Adam, I thought last night with your curveball, and it's not like this hasn't happened before, but you fooled the umpire a couple of times with your curveball. Balls that were strikes, I think the umpire kind of anticipated that it was going to be a ball. Does that happen a lot to you? Uh, it does in early early in the game sometimes. Um, you know, and, and but I think another thing is I'll, I'll turn some of them a little more right to left, and I'll turn some kind of more straight over the top, and it's it's not easy to to judge what the the curveball is going to do. That's that's you know hopefully it's hard for a hitter to hit it mm-hmm. for that exact same reason. But you know if it's doing different things, sometimes a, a, a umpire's really got to stay on it to to catch what it's going to do at the very end, and and it can be tough. I, I umpired little league games, and I can tell you it is way harder than you think it is. I, I mean, I just <laughs> you know these little kids are throwing. 50, 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour at the most. And they're throwing them an inch off the plate. And I'm going, yeah, I'm a pitcher. I like that. That's a strike, you know, and then the hitter's looking at me going, are you kidding me? That's an inch off the plate. And I'm like, you can see an inch. And I'm like, well, maybe it, maybe it was more than an inch. I don't know. You know, you start doubting yourself. It, umpiring is a really, really tough thing. How often do you umpire little league games? I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I don't do it anymore. But when I was in the minor leagues, I did it quite a bit. Um, you know, you just try to pass the time. You go over there. And, and, and also throughout uh, my junior and senior year, I, I was a caddy uh, about half the year, my junior and senior year. And the other half of the year, I was a, a, a little league umpire. And I carried that into the minor leagues a little bit. Just I'd give lessons and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd umpire some games. But, you know, another thing that gets lost, some of these guys have outstanding strike three calls. Jim Joyce has like this, oh, like just crazy loud, high pitched noise. And uh, I tried to do the old like, like for strike. And after the first inning, my voice was completely gone. These guys got their vocal cords worked up really nice. 
<laughs> Adam Wainwright with us on 101 ESPN. Adam, when you're pitching, obviously you pitch differently if you have a big lead as opposed to uh, a, a tie game or a one-run deficit or lead like last night. But when, when your team right now, it's kind of a feast or famine, you either score 12 or 2, do you pay attention to that or do you go into every inning with the same thought process? Well, I mean, you know, but this is a conversation that Jack and I had this year too because he's pitched with some big leads this year and it can be tough. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little, so there's two trains of thought, right? So it's one, you'll hear, sometimes you'll hear an, uh, a commentator say like, uh, or, or somebody on the TV will say, well, he's got this huge lead. He just needs to attack the strike zone, you know? And, and, and what inevitably what happens is if you pitch to the, to the scoreboard, like say you're up by six, all of a sudden, and you start pitching to the scoreboard, oh, I'm just going to throw the ball, you know, down the middle and throw fastballs. And you let teams back in the game and they put up a, a, a two or three spot. And now it's six, three instead of six, nothing. And that's a game that can any, any inning could, you know, result in three runs. So you're not going to give up six, but if you allow them to chip away because you started pitching differently, then that can be a real problem. You have to pitch not looking at the scoreboard, you have to just go out and pitch. And, and uh, the mentality that, that Jack and I talked about was you're winning one nothing, and you got to hold that lead no matter what. When you get up, like when I think his first start against the Reds, he was up like 10 to nothing or something crazy. And they kind of chipped away, chipped away, and, and, and he was kind of at a loss for how to attack that because he didn't want to go out there and walk people, obviously. But you can't put yourself in a spot where – you're not trying to walk people instead of just making pitches. And and when you're making pitches, you're not going to walk people anyways. When you're thinking about I'm holding this one, nothing lead, no matter what, then you're locked in, you're mentally sharp and you don't fall into that trap of giving up a two or three spot because you were just trying to lay it in there. And not, not so much lay it in there, but you're, you're being overly aggressive in the bigger part of the strike zone instead of just making pitches like you would have. And, and sometimes you can think big picture. I remember Dave Duncan telling me a story about a pitcher that he had in Oakland, Bob Welsh, who won 27 games for him. And Bob Welsh was thinking about the seventh inning in the first. And Dunk got to a point where he would ask him before every inning, hey, can you go shut them out this inning? And it was it, it, every inning was a game. Yeah, that's it. And it's every and every pitch is a game. You know, every hitter is a game. Every pitch is a game. Every batter is a game. Every inning is a game. I mean, it, you can make a million different games within the within the game. Now, last night, my main games were I was going to strike out Josh Harrison. I was going to go nine. And I was going to go eight pitches or less in every inning. That was my goal. And so I didn't do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't get my eight pitches or less in any of my innings. But if you have that goal of I'm attacking hitters, I'm getting these quick outs, I'm going to make them put the ball in play, you find yourself 0-1-0-2 a lot, and that's when you end up getting strikeouts. Adam, Randy and I talked about this earlier in the show, but the cover story for Sports Illustrated this week is a piece by Tom Verducci about the mental health-related issues that are happening in baseball. More and more players speaking out about the pressures that you guys feel on a day-to-day basis and how it's impacted them from a mental health standpoint. And from the outside, we look at someone like you who always embraces the big moment and who handles the media so well and social media so well. But I wonder when you really felt the pressure that comes with your job and if there's anything that you do from a mental health perspective that allows you to be able to flourish in a job like this that is so pressurized 
Well, I mean, you know, everybody is is uniquely gifted and talented and and blessed in their own ways, right? And everybody has their own background story of how they got to be where they are. And everybody was raised differently in different circumstances and different situations, some harder than others. And, and, and also people were, were gifted and blessed and cursed with all kinds of things, heredity uh, from passed down from their parents genetically from heredity, all kinds of crazy stuff that they have no control over. You know, it's uh, little anxiety things here. Yeah, your mom had it, your dad had it, his dad had it, grand grandpa had it. Everybody passed it on down or whatever. And, or uh, some some families that's alcoholism or whatever it is. That those things sometimes somebody's born into stuff that you know you you are at a greater risk of something happening. And our job certainly has tons of pressure. Uh, placed on each individual and, and, and how people handle that is directly resulted, I believe, in all those other things in play. How were you raised? How, what What is your personality type? Why is your personality type that? When you were a kid, did this happen to you or were you raised this way? Were your parents this way? Did, did your parents suffer with this? Blah, blah, blah. And and the pressures of, of big league baseball, as I've seen with many a teammate, uh, it can be really, really, really hard. The anxieties of that, living up to all the pressure there. You go, you go to a restaurant, and and our fans are incredible, but inevitably you're going to go somewhere, and somebody's going to go, dude, what was up with that pitch, man? Like, what what were you thinking? You know, or or you nowadays, especially with social media, social media, although it can be, do, it can do a lot of really, really good things in the world. It can also add a lot of negative things to the world, and then you start reading what everybody else is writing, and you start thinking about, oh, man, I got to do this, none of this, and maybe he's right. Maybe I do need to retire. Maybe I am too old, blah, blah, blah. You can you can put a lot of stock into a lot of things that cause distractions from what you're trying to do. But I can tell you, in in dealing with several teammates in the past, sometimes that gets to be too much, and you've got to go get help. But it's hard to know when that is the proper time, and nobody wants to admit that they need help. It, it can be tough. And, and I think that's probably true in any situation, but we have the magnifying glass on us at all times. And it can be tough on teammates. I, I have luckily, and hopefully this continues to be the same. I'm almost like too laid back about just about everything. Um, when it comes to, I mean, my, I'll be like, my wife will be like, you're not worried about that. And I'll be like, no, you know, I mean, I'm really, I'm really not, you know, I mean, maybe I should be, you know, <laughs> she starts, she'll start talking to me. I'm like, gosh, maybe I need to be more worried about it. But I just, uh, you know, in so many things, it, it just doesn't, my, the way I look at it, it's not going to help me being anxious about something. It's not going to help. But for so many people in the world, that's not a choice. Like I make it, it's a choice for me to, to not be anxious about something, but some people don't have that choice. They just innately have that bred into them. And so it's everybody's different. And I don't think unless you go through that, you can't really speak into it as well as guys who have been through it. So, I mean, that's what I would say. 
And Adam, if you haven't read the story, a guy that you know well, Ryan Sheriff, is the lead to the story. And I don't know if you've spoken to, to Ryan earlier this season, but he talked about how he got up on the mound to first game for Tampa this year and just didn't feel anything emotionally. And it was, uh, he, he's yeah, dealing that. with it. Yeah, and, and so uh, it's it's interesting and it is a problem that, uh, heck, all of us have to deal with, but certainly in baseball, I think people perceive sometimes that you guys are superhuman. Well, you feel the emotions and you feel the stresses of everybody else with the job that you do. Yep. You named it. You, you, you nailed it right on the, right on that. That's, that's exactly right. And, 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 and I think at some point it's because we care, right? Like it's the choice for me to not get anxious, not because I don't care, but, but some people get just anxiety attacks and, and really, 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 really nervous because they care. You know, it's uh, they want to do the best job they possibly can. And when they don't, they feel like they're letting people down. And uh, that can be a hard thing. Hey, Adam, I just made a donation to All Win St. Louis at BigLeagueImpact.org. It's a very cool initiative that you and the your fellow teammates and guys around Major League Baseball are taking to help alleviate some of these stresses that we're talking about for people around the world. Tell us about All Win. Yeah, all win St. Louis is it's a uh, it's a really cool thing that Big League Impact and and I've have launched, um, and not just me, quite a few of my teammates actually. We uh, for every game we win, we have pledged as players a certain amount of money per win to go to our initial causes. So uh, I'll be supporting um, Crisis Aid, and Paul Goldschmidt is supporting Food for the Hungry. And Tommy Edmond is supporting uh, the Public Schools Foundation in St. Louis. And uh, Miles Michaelis is supporting uh, Crisis Aid's Women's Shelter. And, and each win that the Cardinals go out and deliver, not only going to bring us one, one step closer to a World Series, but it's also going to bring need for many, many, many people in need across the globe, but especially right there in St. Louis. It's going to make a big difference. So. Um, if you want to be a part of that, please go to, to uh, thebigleagueimpact.org. You can uh, look up bigleagueimpact.org backslash all win St. Louis and uh, see what we're doing. You know, each time we, we win, we're going we're gonna to post something on social about it. It's, you know, it's special for us to not only to just win games, but also to go out there and, and, and help win lives for for people who need or win help for people who need help. You know, I mean, there's so many people, especially right now during this dang pandemic and so many things are shut down. So many people don't have their food that they normally would. So many people don't have the work that they normally would right now. We're, we're especially feeling for them and we're going to go out and try to make a difference. Well, you know, we thank you so much for the time. We thank our friends at Chick-fil-A. By the way, we went through this whole thing. We never mentioned waffle fries, which are unbelievable. Yeah. With the Polynesian sauce. Unbelievable. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a that goes without saying. You know, <laughs> the Chick Fil A waffle fries are at the top of everyone's list without without even you don't even have to say it. And they got the coldest ice cream in the history of the world. The ice dreams, man. Those those things will put a brain freeze on you real quick. Won't they? Hey, have fun today for the finale in Washington, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Adam. All right. Thank you, guys. See you later. That's our friend Adam Wainwright. Go to BigLeagueImpact.org and you can contribute to All Win St. Louis or whatever your favorite team might be. And also, stop by your local Chick-fil-A 
facility and enjoy some great food from Chick-fil-A. Yes, and we are proud to still give our $200 donation on behalf of Care Current's Moment to Big League Impact. Yep, it's headed there now. Coming up next on 101 ESPN, did we underestimate the leadership transition that the Blues had to endure? That's next on 101 ESPN with Carriker and Smallman. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Yesterday on Carriker and Smallman, we spoke to former Blue Kelly Chase about some of the Blues' recent struggles. And one of the things we've talked about all year is the departures of Jay Bomeister to the heart ailment, Alex Petrangelo to free agency, and then the retirement of Alexander Steen because of his back injury. And I, I watched Chaser lead. I know what a great leader he was as a player and is as a person. And his understanding of leadership and I asked him from his perspective what the loss of those three, Bo Meester, Petro, and Steen, had on this team. One guy was a quiet leader that just went about in the eight-up minutes. Another guy was, you know, a leader by the way he played and showed up and, and, and you know, paid the price on the ice and blocked shots. And then the other guy in Steen was like the, the godfather. Like he, he managed everybody's personal lives, not just their not just on the ice. He was able, he had a unique ability to recognize when things were tough in guys' homes, whether it be kids sick or or um, whether it be something that was personal with guys that they were having a hard time with that they maybe didn't want to share, pulling them aside and then creating some sort of a barrier between them and the coaches that showed that they were in a, in a spot where they could grow and they could they could get out of that that funk they were in. That's that's a hard thing to do, and when you can control the dynamic of of uh, the, the the room through personal stuff too, that's a big miss. I think one of you know they miss all of those guys greatly, not just because of their ability on the ice, but for those things I just mentioned. Michelle, those are things that, as outside observers that aren't in, you can see on the ice what those guys do, but you never know the effect and. Kind of been a theme of this show today is distractions and, and mental health. Like anybody else, especially with what Steen did, mm-hmm. you get on the ice and you can be distracted and think about something else. And all it takes is a split second when you're thinking about something else for a guy to race around you and go in and score a goal. This Blues team still has good leadership. We know that Ryan O'Reilly is someone who has led this team in many ways prior. That's why he got to see. We speak to David Perron every week, and he talked about how part of his superstition in his pregame ritual is to make sure that he speaks with everyone before they go out on the ice, whether it's a little joke to lighten them up. He said some guys are a little more serious, so you make it quick. But the fact that he knows his teammates' personalities in that way and knows how to get something out of them before they go out there, I think, speaks volumes. But when you do have not one, not two, but but three really powerful voices in a, in a variety of ways that are missing, that is a big deal, especially, as you mentioned, someone like Alexander Steen. I thought that that comment from Kelly Chase was so telling because if you trust someone not only in a work capacity but in a personal capacity, they really can influence the way that you listen or maybe don't listen mm-hmm. to management, a.k.a. your coaching staff. And if Alex Steen was someone that was that influential within – the the dressing room and he could control the dynamic of the room as Kelly Chase mentioned I'm sure Craig Berube really leaned on someone like him to get the messaging through and then uh, with sports teams when you're injured you're kind of like you're not part of the team and you've lost 
Schwartz. You've lost Tarasenko, who wears an A for a long time this season. Uh, you have spent time without Pareko, who's in, in your leadership core now. So you've lost kind of some of that leadership, and it's hard for those guys to walk back into the room and say, okay, especially if you're not playing really well, okay, now I'm going to assume that leadership role. So it's a tough thing for the Blues that I think that I underestimated. I just assumed, okay, all these guys, they've been leaders in the past for their junior teams and their their prospect camp teams, and they'll lead. But leading takes some time to learn how to do. I underestimated it as well, and that's no knock to Bo or Petro or Steiner because we understood what weight their voices carried within that group. But I guess I looked at it as this group, not all of them, but the core of this group want a Stanley yep. Cup together. And they went on that ride together, and they understand each other better than anybody, and they have something that bonds them, and they have at least you would hope, respect for each other on that level. And so many guys on the team did step up during that run and were leaders in so many ways. And I knew that with some new faces coming in that there was going to always be a chemistry transition. But I didn't think leadership would be an issue. And it doesn't necessarily seem like it's something that's super pervasive. But I, And that's going to knock, again, on the guys that are leading right now. But I do think that there is a void from the guys that left in, in a lot of ways. That is today's big thing with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. And now it's time for... What's totally killing Smalls right now? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls, with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by BMW of West St. Louis. Save up to 20% on a great selection of service loaners. All right, it is time now for... You're killing me, Smalls. We've heard a lot about this Super League in European soccer. People were angry, Randy, that these top clubs were going to form together and join a Super League where they didn't have to face relegation. They got an automatic bid, didn't have to worry about anything, and it was all in the name of money. It was all in the name of greed. Well, in a surprising development, these owners said, we're going to take the greed part of this and we're going to table it for now because the backlash from the fans and from the media has been so overwhelming and so severe that a bunch of the top clubs, Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Tottenham, Man United, they all announced that they're withdrawing from the Super League. This is less than 48 hours after they agreed to found it. And this is going to be an incredible 30 for 30 one day, this story about the Super League that never was. But a lot of these clubs putting out statements last night and like I said this was after widespread criticism and I appreciate that they listened to the fans but I don't know if they had another choice no the even the fans of the teams that were going to be in the Super League were unhappy about this to me the biggest shocker of all aside from the fact that this was announced on Sunday and by Tuesday night it was pretty much done Mm -hmm. is that Stan Kroenke's team apologized They did. Arsenal tweeted, as a result of listening to you and the wider football community over recent days, we are withdrawing from the proposed Super League. We made a mistake and we apologize for it. But that is not enough. So Kroenke out was trending worldwide last night. Supporters of the Gunners still hate Stan Kroenke. And this is just the latest in a CVS length receipt list of issues that they have with him. And we can obviously identify with that. There were fan protests 
Randy, that were planned ahead of their match against Everton on Friday. And even though they put out the statement, even though it seems like they're pulling out of the Super League and they're listening to their supporters, the protests are still going to happen Good. on Friday. They're still going to happen on Friday. And I was trying to read a little bit about this this morning, trying to get the pulse of what's happening with Arsenal fans. And when I just Googled Stan Kroenke, the Telegraph had put out a piece. And here's the title. Fans defeated the European Super League. Stan Kroenke could fall next. Wow. And I tried to read it, but there's a paywall, and I really don't want to pay. For one article? For one article. But I wonder if this momentum is enough to inevitably take him down, at least with Arsenal. No. I don't think so either, but I appreciate their passion, and I appreciate their hatred for him. And, by the way, the the open letter that Arsenal's team sent to fans was signed the board and it was Kroenke and Josh Kroenke KSC they were the driving force behind apparently the entire operation in a world where everything is polarizing it's nice to know that hatred for Stan Kroenke can be a galvanizing force maybe we as St. Louis should lend a hand to the Arsenal supporters and we should combine forces and we should do something to get Stan Kroenke booted out I would help. I would definitely help. And I love this line from an Arsenal blog. This was an idea so irredeemably awful that the likes of Boris Johnson and Amazon (laughs) were able to score morality points. The club owners and those executives who were complicit gave them a kind of assist they couldn't fail to take. Tap-ins. They couldn't have knelt down and headed them over the line. Incredible. Yeah. So it it is remarkable. And I, I don't think fans... I don't think Stan Kroenke's ever going to get rid of any of his franchises while he's here on this earth. I don't think Vans can have that sort of effect. I wish, though. I wish it could happen. Yeah, me too. I also think these teams in any sort of league need to have some sort of a fan voice that's on their council. They need a fan conciliary. They need to go to that person and say, hey, you know what? We've been talking to other owners. We're thinking about a Super League. How will this go over? The Oakland Raiders need to have someone that they can go to and say, we're thinking about pushing out this tweet. What do you think? They need to have a rational, objective voice in the room that isn't trying to pander to the rich people or keep their job. But at the end of the day, isn't it all about pandering to the rich people that are buying tickets? There's a lot more people that are supporting your club and buying tickets than just the rich people who are in the suites. I know There's that. There's a lot a lot more fan support than just the people at the suite level. But ultimately, you want to pander to the rich people if you're a team. True, but if you're buying tickets in the suite level, you likely love the, the EPL or UEFA setup. You don't want to... If you're in the suite level, you're not just high-fiving Stan Kroenke. You made more money. Yay! Go team money. You're an Arsenal supporter. You want to watch them play, even if you're rich. No, my point is, is that these people, if if they're going to make a phone call, it's going to be to one of the rich people. Even if they have a conciliar on their, did I say it right? Conciliary. 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 Use your your hands. It helps. Conciliary. So if they have somebody that is there for them 24 hours a day you should shoot a text hey what do you think of this idea 12 team super league <laughs> or 12 team super league thoughts they call their friend uh hey uh 
Biff, what do you think of this idea? We've got this idea to make more money. Biff. It's called a 12-team Super League, and we're going to have 12 teams. What do you think? You're going to make more money? Well, yeah, Biff, I'm going to make a lot more money. I'd do it. So Biff is going to be on board with more money, whereas Steve, that you can text, he's not. But if you're a rich guy, you're going to listen to the other rich guy. You aren't going to listen to Steve. But Biff is also a supporter of the Gunners, so he wants to enjoy the product. But ultimately, he's about his buddy making more money. And if he has to pay more, he's rich. He doesn't care. But just because he's also rich doesn't mean he's buddies with the owner. But I'm just talking about the owner that has the choice of consulting with Biff or Steve. He's going to consult with Biff. And they're going to meet. Then they'll have brunch at the club on Sunday. With some caviar. Yes. Mm, Delightful. Can you pass the gray (laughs) poupon? Yeah, that's where we are. We would be the worst rich people ever. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, May you pass the gray poupon? That's the gray poupon. Uh, So are we done here? Are we moving on to the next one? I think we need to wrap. Okay, we'll wrap. That's Michelle. I'm I'm getting the wrap signal. Garrick and Smallman, 101 ESPN. Let's see if you can do it. Say the word again. Consigliere. Consigliere. Nailed it. (laughs) We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Follow Michelle Smallman on the Insta at M Smallman as we try to get Michelle over that 10,000 follower threshold that will allow her to kind of bail on Twitter. You never want to bail on Twitter. I like the Twitter. That's good. I don't get as much grief as you do. That's true. You know, I've only gotten really one hater on Instagram and it was on your account. It was a woman like twice my age who was very unhappy. I didn't like deviled eggs and attacked my family personally. Don't worry. Miserable people get blocked. Uh, congratulations to Kyle Walsh. She was roughly my 3,000 followers. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs oh, Tire and Auto Centers. Close to home or close to work. For Let's do this again. Okay. But it is time for the crossover because Danny Mac is here. <laughs> Yay. Hello, Danny Mac. What's going on? So anyway, oh, Kyle Walsh. Mic on. <laughs> Kyle, What's going on? Kyle Walsh is roughly my 3,000th follower, so he's the one that wins the carrot cake and all of that cool stuff. All right, Kyle. Shout out to Kyle Walsh. Yeah, so we'll deliver that soon. Uh, it's it's all good, Danny. You got a day game today? Day game today, Scherzer and uh, Carlos Martinez. So looking forward. I think it's always fun to watch Max Scherzer pitch, whether he's with you or not. Just you're watching a future Hall of Famer. He's got ties to St. Louis, so looking forward to it. We had Bob Carpenter on the show earlier in the week, and I know you talked to one of the broadcasters from the Nationals as well. And Bob thinks that with their needs to sign Soto and Turner, it's not a guarantee that Scherzer is going to be there beyond this year. They have a lot of backloaded deals, too. A lot, they're going to have to pay for some of these guys. Like Corbin last night, is in the he's got triple digit or six figures in his contract. He's making $24, 25000000 million. Yeah, I, I could see that. And depending on where they're at in the season, you know, what do they do with a guy that's a pending free agent? You have to keep Juan Soto. Yeah. I mean, you you have to. And I think when you look at the shortstop situation in Major League Baseball, and I'm I'm all about Tatis and Story and these other guys, and Lindor got his deal, Trey Turner is right there. Yeah, he is. He is is really good and doesn't get the – 
the level of acknowledgement that maybe he should as opposed to what these other guys are getting. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. But I could see Scherzer going somewhere else. But I, I also see on the flip side where they say this is a legacy player. We gave him an unbelievable contract. He not only lived up to it, he surpassed it, and he's a Hall of Famer, and we want to make sure and ensure every possible way he goes in with the curly W on his hat. Well, naturally, that leads me to think, could he find his way home to St. Louis? I guess. We'll we'll find out. You know, I I, I know he... um, he grew up a Cardinal fan. He loves the Cardinals. Went to Mizzou, obviously. Parkway Central guy. Grew up in Chesterfield. Um, it'd be interesting, you know, and, and if you think about how you're going to have to beat the Dodgers, because let's, let's get past just winning your division. If you get there, how do you beat the Dodgers? Mm-hmm. You've got to shut down that lineup somehow. And he's the kind of guy that's a big game pitcher that probably could do it. And I, I think that's what the Nationals have banked on. There's a really interesting story in the Washington Post the other day by Tom Boswell, who's a great writer. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they've paid and, and invested so much into their rotation. At what point do they have to pay the piper kind of, kind of, you I know, read so that. to speak. It was and, a good piece. Yeah. And, you know, they've given these guys a lot of money. Strasburg now dealing with a shoulder ailment. He's out. You know, Scherzer's got a lot of mileage on on his arm, his body. You look at Corbin. He is his velocity's dipping. It was dipped last night. He hasn't been great. He was good last night, but it was interesting that they took him out so early. But um, you know, they've they've kind of rolled the dice on those big guns to get them through, and that's how they won that World Series. When I was at ESPN, we interviewed Daryl Morey one time, and he talked about how they built the Rockets to defeat the Warriors, that the Warriors were such a force that they had to construct the team with them in mind. And I wonder how many teams, as they're acquiring players, constructing their team, think about the Dodgers and the way that they do things. I think I would be, at least yeah. to an extent. But Now, baseball's different, though. I mean, I think if you get in head-to-head in, in basketball as opposed to ba- like baseball, somebody could get hot and carry you. Sure. You know what I mean? You get lucky. or Because you're not looking at necessarily individual matchups right. or style of play. But. I think you're just looking at, okay, somebody gets hot, Juan Soto emerges, uh, player X emerges in the final two months, Randy Orozarena pops mm-hmm. on the scene, those kind of things. That happens in baseball. So it's I understand the comparison, but I do think it's a little apples to oranges. The thing is, the Dodgers have... And Stan Keston said this in 2013 before the playoff series here, down in the Dodgers dugout. He said, he pointed across the diamond and said, that's our model. This is when they had all those, they made all the trades, the new ownership was in place, and they'd gotten Gonzalez and Crawford and all those guys. And somebody said, uh, but that's sustainable. I think the model that he was saying is Mm -hmm. sustainable success every year and developing players, which they're doing. That's the thing. What they've done is he pointed across and said, that's our model. They've done it. And then they've taken it to an uber level because they've supplemented with so much money. Right. They've supplemented their young players with people like Betts and Bauer and Price and and guys like that. Yeah. And if you look at how the Cardinals have done it, too, though, that's when you look at how they've won. I mean, they would go out and supplement. And right. get DeRosa Holiday, you know, like that yeah. one year to get into postseason play, keep Holiday, go out and get Arenado, you know. So I, I'm with you. I mean, if you look at on the field last night, a lot of homegrown talent mm-hmm. on that field. Again, every year the Cardinals have that. It's amazing how many players are playing for other teams yeah. that are, you know, I'm not just talking about Randy or Rosarena, but other players that are in the it's league amazing. right now that are making an impact with other teams. Yeah. The Cardinals do 
a very good job. Now, you you can debate, you know, whether or not they should have kept some players or do you trade some for a potential free agent that could walk and you bring him. I mean, all that's up for debate. What you cannot debate is the fact that they are churning out players. Right. And there's a lot of them. A lot of them. Yeah. Can I go back to one thing we talked about with Trey Turner? Because this is a, a fun thing. June 4th of 2015, the Padres make a no deal by sending Trey Turner right. as the end of a three-way deal to Washington. Exactly one year later, it was June 4th of 2016 that they traded James Shields for Fernando Tatis Jr. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you're a Sox. <laughs> it happens, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you you you, you bet on guys to to hopefully come through, be young players that turn into stars, or you don't believe them. It, it takes a couple of people in the organization to say, ah, you know, let's go get that guy, or let's go win now. And as a fan base, you're saying, yeah, let's go win now. And then you look up, and Fernando Tatis is the face of baseball. And James Shields is nowhere to be seen. Right. <laughs> it, it happens. That's baseball, man. Yeah. And it's weird how guys, I always find, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but in baseball more so than any other sport, um, how how players reinvent themselves. So, oh, man. you know, four years ago, some guy's not really good. He's kind of just muddling through his career, and something clicks. Something happens, Let and they get better. Two guys that were absolutely toast, done, finished, finito with the Cardinals. Jamie Moyer, who went on to win yeah. about 150 games after he left the Cardinals, was horrible, and I think he spent actually a couple of years out of the major leagues after he was here, and then Rich Hill. Yeah. We had Rich Hill in spring training, and yep. he was done. I think it was 2013 he was in camp yeah. with the Cardinals yeah and he wasn't breaking a pane of glass and then he redefined himself with an unbelievable curveball and he always had it but got it to where it just went to another level and now he's made about 80 million dollars yeah. since then it's incredible hey Dan I'm going to be at the rally house in Chesterfield on Friday from awesome. noon to two I'm going to be giving away stuff what are you giving away? So I've got, I'm going to have $10 Rally House gift cards for anybody that wears their favorite jersey or sweater, as we call it in hockey, uh, to the store while supplies last. Anybody wearing a jersey or a hockey sweater uh, that comes in gets a $10 Rally House gift card. I'm going to be handing them out like they're candy. It's Friday from noon to 2 with me at Rally House in Chesterfield Commons. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Maybe I'll come out and say hello. I would love that. You no, should. No, you wouldn't. Would no, you wear I, a jersey, Dan? No. <laughs> I don't own a jersey. I was just going to ask you if you owned a jersey. I, I do also not. do not own a jersey. I find that surprising. Why? I, I, you're you a fan. A Marino I jersey, figured that you? you would. From when I was a kid, I do have a Dan Marino jersey from when I was a Oh, youth. okay. But okay. as an adult, never worn a jersey, not once. I am a fan, but not a fan of jerseys. No? No. The one jersey that remains in my closet is number 80. Isaac. Yep. I've got a couple of jerseys hanging on walls that were signed oh, to me. So do I. Yeah. yeah, I have some that are me. <laughs> I don't know why I kept them, but I've got Mike Matheny gave me a, a character of the Saturday, the really nice Saturday sweaters that they jerseys that they have with a character one hundred and one on the back. Did he really? Yeah, that's nice. And then uh, Did I he had... signed it to you. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, good guy. What was the inscription? Uh, Randy, uh, thanks for everything you do, Mike Matheny, and then whatever the religious thing was. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the number. <laughs> Sorry, and then and then I don't, I don't, I don't remember what he wrote. He's, I don't. And then I had a Rams one that they made up for me, but I think I might have burned it. Oh, character one hundred and one, Rams jersey. I don't blame you on that one. Thank you. I don't see. I every once in a while I still see people. You go to a gas station or you you're out shopping mm-hmm. and you'll see a Rams hat or a sweatshirt. Doesn't it pains me? Doesn't it make you have a physical reaction? Not does, quite that far. I, I'll look and I'll go, what? Like my body turns. Like what? Yeah, I can't I, believe I see it out in the wild. It I'm just, just getting to the me. point. It's like, eh, whatever. 
I'm over it. Whatever. Yeah. Go make your millions, billions, whatever. Hey, we're looking forward to your show. Uh, Eduardo Perez is coming up. Oh, did we miss him yesterday? Or we we did. He, he, he had an issue with his dog. Oh, okay. So that'd be the first question I'm going to ask how his dog's doing. Yeah, that's yeah. important. Yeah. All right. He had to go to the vet. We shall be tuned in. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Uh, great job today by our producer engineer, Emily Butcher. Thank you. Thank you. Michelle, this was fun. It was, Randy. I'll see you tomorrow. It was a great hump day. We hope you enjoyed it. And we thank you for tuning in, texting in, and being a part of the show for all of us. Until tomorrow morning at 7, have a great day, St. Louis. You've been listening to the Character and Smallman podcast, powered by I Promise. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama. Nick Saban citing some hypothetical point spreads to prove his point that the tie deserve a spot in the college football playoffs holds little substance when you consider Bama's best win is over Texas. No, the committee got it right. TCU had a great season with far more ranked wins than Bama and didn't deserve to lose their spot after playing a surging Kansas State in a championship game. And Ohio State, while not playing some of their best ball later in the season, was still 12-0 until they came face-to-face with my Wolverines. While the college football playoff system isn't nowhere near as good as it could be, it's better than what we had. And in a few years, it will be better for all of college football. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. And don't forget, BetOnline for the NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but... Don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.